What questions are we all afraid to ask about the role technology and data play in our lives? Seeing the Quiet Part Out Loud is a new podcast from LiveRamp that uncovers what's unsaid about technology, data, and business, and explores how they intersect. Join us and our host, Daniela Harkins, Senior Vice President of Commercial Strategy at LiveRamp, as we dig into the challenges marketers and businesses are facing today. Learn more about how data collaboration can help build customer intelligence or how the latest innovations in privacy technology can help you grow your business. Subscribe today wherever you listen to your podcast or listen on our website at liveramp.com slash podcast. Welcome to Great Minds, and our guest today is Daniela Harkins. Daniela is the SVP of Commercial Strategy and Excellence at LiveRamp. They are a great, great partner uh, of the industry and of Advertising Week, and we were thrilled to have Warren Jensen on in Season 1, and we are thrilled to have you here, Daniela, in Season 2, so welcome. Wonderful. Thank you. I'm very happy to be here. Very excited. So, Daniela, you've built this incredible career working in tech, and we're going to get into all of it, uh, but our crack Great Minds research team uh, has uh, gone back into the Daniela Harkins archives, and I love that your academic background is much more in the arts, It is um, seemingly entirely disconnected from your career path. So I'd love to start by talking about those early days back at Temple and, and the lack of connection between what you studied and the direction that you ultimately took, which, by the way, I did the same thing, uh, but I'd love to hear your story because this is about you. Yeah, absolutely. It's funny because I think about like I fell into technology and I also fell in love with it, but it's not where I started. I was a French major and a, a art history and a Spanish minor at Temple University in Philadelphia. And I joke around and I used to say, I wanted to be the curator of the Louvre. And I realized there was one of those jobs. I'm not French. You need to have more than a minor in art history to do that. And so I realized that like the job prospect component of that was um, probably not going to be fulfilled in this role. But I still loved language and I love art and I love to travel and I love you know, when I think about language, it's really about connection, which is still something that fundamentally drives everything that I do today. And so it was very much arts focused as a student, very much built on my passion and desire to travel and connect with different people, different cultures. Um, but then the reality hit, and it's really interesting. I don't know if, you know, other listeners have felt this, but I didn't quite know what I was qualified to do when I left school and I fell into technology and I fell into uh, implementing software systems at hospitals. And back in the days when you'd have to literally plug in the tape into a mainframe. And, um, and so that's kind of how I fell in love with technology was really moving there. Cause again, I didn't know what to do. I knew that I could talk to people. I knew I was smart. I knew that I, could, um, I know I could relate to people, I could teach, I could do things like that, but I didn't know what I was qualified to do and fell into technology. 
Amazing. So you graduate in 95. I know you went back to New Orleans and started a nice run at Siemens. Was there anything, was there anything in between? You couldn't, uh, you, you couldn't have taken two years off, Danielle. There is actually, I worked for the Olympics, interestingly enough. So after graduating from school, and I'm dating myself a little bit here, um, the Olympics were in uh, 96 in Atlanta. And I got an opportunity to go, I was kind of like, do I go into the Peace Corps? Cause I want, I was really passionate about giving back. And I was thinking about going to, I, I was ready and almost signed up to go to Gabon, Africa and was going to teach. And then this opportunity came with the Olympics and I thought, well, I'm going to do that. And I got an opportunity to manage all of the VIP uh, transportation um, back to and from the rowing venue at the Atlanta Olympics game. And, and I met amazing people and it was a fantastic, um, a fantastic experience. Got to meet people from all around the world. I keep going back to this connection that's so important to me in my career. Um, and then it was over. And as quickly as it was there, that's as quickly as it was over and um, worked a while. You know, when you work for the Olympic Games, you don't just necessarily work over the two week period that, they're that, that the games are playing. So we definitely had a long ramp up period and we had a ramp down period also through some of the Paralympics. And then after that, um, that's when I started working at, at Siemens. That's when I, I started looking at a couple of different opportunities. I had a little stopover where I was doing some technical recruiting and getting, again, just getting more involved in all of the technical aspects of jobs and then realized that I was actually interested in the technology and that's how I made my way to Siemens. Fantastic. Yeah, a lot of my early career was in uh, amateur Olympic sports and um, I got to go to Barcelona in 92 oh, okay. and Lillehammer in 94. And I certainly know Atlanta because I went to Emory. So I love, yeah, I love Atlanta and I'm still in touch with Billy Payne, who ran the 96 games. Was uh, that's amazing? You know, yeah, no, what, what wonderful experience. experience. Yeah, it's nothing, nothing like it. Nothing like it. You know, I, I remember going to like Salt Lake and a couple of other events, a, a couple of other Olympics, and I feel like once you get involved and you understand all that goes beyond, it goes on behind the scenes, and really the the cultural, like the massive cultural event that it is beyond the games. It's, it's really, for me, it's invigorating and I love it. And, and um, I really had a fantastic experience. And some of those people today, it's really interesting to look back and see what we're all doing. We're all doing vastly different things, um, but are all rooted in our love of, uh, our love of different cultures and our love of, uh, frankly, just getting shit done and coming together and like, you know, having fun, but working really, really hard together. Absolutely. Absolutely. Very special uh, across the board. So you then wind yourself back to the great state of Louisiana and the wonderful city of New Orleans. That's right. I love the way you say it, Matt. Not many people can can do it like you do it. Oh, come on. <laughs> uh, well, I, I genuinely love it there. And uh, if I could blink myself like the old Bewitch show and be anywhere you know, in the world, I would put myself right back in the French Quarter and sitting at Cafe Du Monde. I can think a few places more magical than that. I agree. I agree. And I love just the overall mentality of the city around like, laissez les bons temps rouler, which is just let the good times roll. And, and everybody just, you know, the, the beautiful thing is uh, it's, a, it's a forgiving city and, and people 
you know, just if you do, you, you do you. Exactly. Exactly. So you start about a seven year run. I know you also ended up in Italy with Siemens, but working in technology in the late nineties was a little bit different than working in technology today. Uh, you're 10 years uh, at least ahead of the iPhone. You're about the same ahead of YouTube. Almost all of the topics that we discussed today and places that you would go on to help lead a, a great run at Axiom. And of course, we're going to talk a lot about LiveRamp. Most of what those companies did, if not all, did not exist in any form back no. then. Talk about the general landscape of working in technology then and what it meant. And, you know, give us a little perspective on the evolution of technology yeah. going back to that period. It's interesting. So when I think about it, so what I did at Siemens was very much focused on in the implementation of software systems or capabilities in hospitals. So whether it's clinical solutions or whether it is financial solutions or um, things like that, or business solutions, um, it was very much focused on that at the time. And it's interesting because I think about literally, I used to get on a plane with a series of tapes and I would have to go to a hospital and go into the IT room and plug these tapes into their mainframe system. And that is how we would literally, quote unquote, turn things on or start a process to implement these complex systems in hospitals. And it was all on-prem and it was all, I, I think about like on-prem, I think about um, how big and heavy the actual physical machines were. I think about the user experience and how disconnected it was from one hospital to another. If you were in a if you were in a in a in a healthcare system, I think about like the user experience. Just thinking about um, no web based applications or solutions. SaaS didn't like this idea of a SaaS, right? A software as a service didn't exist, um, and it was I, I equate it to being big, slow, and heavy, um, but also fundamentally better than anything they had done before because you could also you could have uh, medical records that were starting to be automated and it was so you know it's, it's funny because I look at what we were doing then and while it looked different right we had green screens it wasn't point and click like it was so massively different um that I was still very much on that ride or that evolution because it was better than what we had done before and now I look back at it and I'm like, holy shit, like, I don't know how we got anything done with those solutions based on the speed and the capabilities of technology that exists in the market today. Yeah, no, it's, uh, it's amazing. We were in one of our markets is Japan. We have Advertising Week Asia in Tokyo and uh, IBM is a great partner of ours over there. And uh, in their office, they have one of the first IBM mainframes. And it's enormous and in relative terms has no horsepower whatsoever. But at that time, that was the state of the art. I mean, I remember going through and training people or taking people through and like having to use the tab button and knowing that I had to give myself a couple of seconds for the cursor to move from one field to the other. Yeah. No, uh, yeah, no. Amazing. Amazing. So let's start to jump to the, uh, 21st century yeah. version of Daniela and your reputation that sort of, sort of followed you throughout your career is you know how to grow business. And best I can tell, 
that reputation really started to take off at the beginning of your tenure at Axiom, uh, which has gone through a couple of evolutions. I know now part of the IPG family, but Axiom was one of the early, very strong players in the space. And you're leading digital impact. You're still pretty young Mm -hmm. and you're mixing it up and you're, you're getting stuff done. Yeah. It's interesting. I love that you kind of honed in on the growing. I call myself a builder in a lot of cases, whether that means building a business, building an incubator, and there's a lot of growth associated when you build something. And um, it it's really interesting when I think about digital impact, the reason that I was after going to grad school, so I went to, I, I took a break, I went to grad school, I was working for Siemens in Italy, and I was, I went to grad school in Italy as well. And I knew that I wanted to get into the digital realm. It was, you know, early 2000s. It was right when we're starting, right? We're, we're seeing a lot of web properties and publishers starting to take off. And it was starting, that was, it was getting exciting to me. And um, I took, when I went over to Digital Impact, which was then subsequently acquired by Axiom, one of the things that I loved was very quickly, I got my hands dirty with the idea of data tied to email was my approach or was my step into the digital ecosystem. So it was interesting how tying email to search or email to direct mail, and it sounds pretty basic today, but, um, or tying email to digital advertising, how we could start to, to kind of streamline and bring these work streams together that were seemingly disparate at one point. And again, listen, a lot of our clients, it's not just the channel itself was functionally disparate or not connected. It was that even within organizations, the folks that we worked with with on the email team had an email database and then you had direct mail and you have these big MIS or like, you know, information management groups that had a function. And then you had advertising that was in a function. So early on, I just, I got really interested in being able to pull a lot of this information together. And I credit digital impact with being the role that really opened my eyes on how I can work with clients, how we can challenge ourselves to do more, and how crucial this idea of the intersection of data, technology, creative is. And that's really where my hunger started and my, and my passion for this. And you also worked on both the agency side and the brand slash client side back 06, 07, 08, still relatively early days. Talk about the experience working on both sides. I think the agencies, if you look at who have the winners and who have the losers been, if we boil it down that simply, uh, the last you know, 10, 15 years, certainly I think a lot of the agency community to its credit has morphed and evolved. But early on, I think there was a lot of fear uh, in the agency community. So let's get let's get your you know finger on the pulse looking back at that time, agencies and brands. Yeah, it's interesting because there was a lot of a lot of curiosity on the agency front, but also a, a fear of making a big move when it came to leveraging, let's say, data or changing the model that they worked within at that point. And so I think that that was a critical time because that's when I think brands 
started looking at how do I connect this? I remember the conversations with a financial services institution and literally having to navigate and introduce the agency to other folks within the organization because they had no access to data. They didn't understand potentially the power that data could have for them and how it could really uh, drive increased results, drive more business for them, drive all of that. And um, I think it took a while. It took quite a few years. I felt like I was an evangelist for the agencies. I felt like I spent a lot of time educating them on the importance of um, the importance of data, the importance of understanding different aspects of their client's business outside of the the the, the specific area that they were focused on. And um, it was just a really interesting time. I think there was fear. I think there was a natural. Um, there was, they questioned, um, and there was a natural cynicism around some of the things that I was talking about, um, which I think is okay because I think it makes us all better if we question and don't just necessarily take somebody's word for it. Um, but it was a really interesting time. And, you know, on the, on the brands fl uh, flipping that on the brand side, there were like, it's amazing now to look at organizations and think about chief data officers and thinking about how organizations are structured today versus how they were 10 years ago. And they are different and they are more connected than they were 10 years ago. And so it was not just driving and the education and, and evangelism around what data and technology can do together with agencies, but then talking to brand clients about how they need to collaborate internally to be able to take advantage of these new capabilities. And your knowledge of this ecosystem, you get deep pretty quick. I mean, you are deep into digital, your, your you know, CRM data, you're, you, you are in the midst of a lot of it. Did that come easily to you? It's, I, I am, uh, I talk about connecting with people. One of the other things that I'm good at is connecting the, if I look at a solution or I look at something, I can connect the different pieces. But truthfully, I go back to digital impact. Digital impact gave me access to digital data. It gave me access to email data. It gave me access to CRM data. It started, I started talking to clients about third-party data, even though I didn't really know what I was talking about at the time. Mm -hmm. And so I credit that for my ability to start to connect things. And then I was also just very lucky that I got kind of embraced at, at Axiom to be able to learn then more of the infrastructure components, more of the architecture components of data so that you can get really deep on not just what are you trying to deliver, but then because look, data is complex and all and, and the entire ecosystem is complex and I don't know it all but there are areas that I can go pretty deep and it's because of needing to build solutions for clients. That's how, you know, that's how I learned it. It's a great story. So you have a great run there and then best I can tell, begin the first of two tenures yes, at, live, at, live, at LiveRamp. Talk about your road from Axiom to round one with LiveRamp. Yeah. Yeah, so I was heading up the sales group for, at the time, what we called our audience operating system and Axiom AOS, and was highly focused on digital. And Axiom was going through its own transformation at that point, because, you know, previous to Scott Howe and 
Warren Jensen and Nada Stewart, who was the CRO at the time, previous to them coming in, Axiom started going down a path of almost being adverse to digital. And then we have a new um, executive team come in and we start to focus on that. So I was heading up. Um, I started on the product side and really kind of building out some of the capabilities, um, but then moved quickly back into a sales role where we were focused on driving a lot of digital capabilities. And with the acquisition of LiveRamp, it was very natural for me to go back into or to go over to LiveRamp. And I really acted like a bridge for a very long period of time from a sales, really from a sales product and marketing standpoint, because you can imagine a company of 50 people from Silicon Valley and a company based in Arkansas with thousands of people and is, you know, has 40 years of experience around data, they speak different languages and culturally they're different. And so I spent a lot of time um, I went emerging myself or immersing myself into the live ramp way. And truthfully, I mean, I, I, they, they became some of my best friends. I mean, I came back to live ramp because I love the people. I love the people and I believe in what we do. And um, so I, I really spent a lot of time. And so my role at Axiom just was a natural fit for me to expand and kind of go over and immerse myself on the live ramp side, which is yeah. what I uh, What I've observed about live ramp, and I guess it starts with Warren at the top, is it's that blend of humanity and technology. And not everybody gets that blend right. I, you know, Matt, I appreciate you saying that because that is really important to me. As I think about, there are things that drive me professionally. And, and, and a large portion of that is our ability to be able to drive business results for our clients and help them grow both as, as an organization and our individual clients and the people that we work with to help them grow from a career standpoint. But the humanity piece is so important. And it is what drives me on a regular basis, whether that humanity means our culture and ensuring that we consistently say what we do and do what we say, whether that is our DIB efforts. And I am fiercely vocal about equality within our organization um, and people respect that and they listen. And I think um, whether, and that equality comes from racial equality, sexual preference, you know, uh, gender, Whatever it is, it's like I am fiercely focused on how to make Live Ramp um, and a place where everybody's voice and point of view, right, is valued. And so that humanity piece is massive for me. Yeah, no, I think we we feel exactly the same way. And and you know, you'll see an awful lot of content and programming at Advertising Week coming up in a few weeks that links to issues which transcend the industry. Uh, and I'm particularly proud we're doing a night at the Apollo Theater uh, right. with, the, with the Nelson Mandela Foundation. And you know I can't think of a place that means more in black culture uh, yeah. than the Apollo. And we have uh, entirely distinct initiatives with the uh, Hispanic community and with the Asian, the AAPI community, which often gets left out of the equation. Uh, and has had a very difficult year, you know, yeah. all the demonization of the AAPI population by our former yep. president, you know, has not helped a lot of people. Yep. Um, okay, so let's get back to uh, uh, our, our 
task at hand here, Daniela. So you have a, a, an initial good run at LiveRamp, and then you leave. I do. I do. I leave for a couple of reasons. One is I felt as though I wanted to grow and learn about mobile. So I felt as though I knew a lot about, let's say, display advertising. I knew a lot about all of these other channels or, um, or ways to engage on other devices like your desktop. Um, but I really wanted to learn mobile. And at the time, like, I feel like for five years, I don't know if you felt this, Matt, it was always the year of mobile. And it was like, when is mobile really going to be recognized in terms of, you know, it's like you looked at your browsing, you looked at your usage behaviors, and then you looked at how brands and the marketing strategies and the advertising strategies that were being driven there. And there was a disconnect and I couldn't figure out why. And so I wanted to go to um, a mobile company and it turned out that I started looking at a lot of different organizations and the CEO at the time of Verve was a woman named Nada Stirrett, who was also someone that really made me believe in myself. Um, and, and at Axiom empowered me to um, accelerate my career growth. And so I thought it was a great opportunity. And I went over there and we learned some stuff. And, um, you know, we, I, I think going into it um, had certain expectations of what it would be like. And, and with any startup, there's risk associated with that. Um, but what I will say is that I learned a lot about, about mobile. And I learned, I again, have met some amazing people that we brought over to LiveRamp. Um, and so it was a great experience. And it also made me appreciate how much I like LiveRamp and I love the people that I work with. And, and Nada is terrific. Yeah. Yeah, I really yeah. like her. She's okay. She's a force, isn't she? She's great. <laughs> She's one of those special people. So you leave, but, yep. then you, but then you come back. Yep. Yep. I don't think I ever left LiveRamp. It, it's, it's so funny because I always considered myself a LiveRamper. Um, and so even though I was somewhere else, I, I didn't feel like I left. And then, you know, an opportunity presented itself. Um, Laura Desmond called me one day and said, hey, we're, we, need, we need to really think about elevating the conversations and the relationships that LiveRamp has. And I'm thinking about building out this team. And um, would you, you know, would you consider it? And I spoke to Annika at the time, who was our one of our presidents. And um, it was a good time to come back because it was, you know, I think I was my first time at LiveRamp. I was very excited about the things that we could move forward. And one of the things that I've learned through my career is that you can't make people ready to make the changes or do the things unless they are ready themselves. And it doesn't matter how much I force it or how much I wanna do it or how much I can show the benefit of it. Organizationally, if we're not ready to make those steps, it's not gonna happen. And LiveRamp was ready to make the steps when I, that, that I was so passionate about when I came back to the organization. And so it, it's been great. It's, you know, I was, um, I, I was really focused on agency executive relationships when I came back, which then grew into really back into a full-on sales leader role um, and now into what I'm doing now. So it's been, it's been fun. And, and a great title. And you, you used the word earlier, but I love chief evangelist. I mean, with an industry that changes at this, almost the speed of lightning, we need people to be able to go out and talk to the industry and talk to the customers 
and educate or be a thought leader or help on it's not even just education it's more about how do i help you um do what you're doing in an easier way in a faster way in a like how do i help you understand all the things that are open or options to you how do how can i help you create some best practices around these things and it's you know i think we need more evangelism in the industry um because we're changing so much and so, you know, that's what I came back to do was build some of those relationships and, um, and establish some bigger partnerships. The other thing was, you know, there's a, there's a movement that from, from a vendor to being a strategic partner. And I think we use those words sometimes interchangeably, we shouldn't. And, and I think that was a really big focus for my role and still is today is, how do we position ourselves? How do we position our people? How do we work with our customers to be a bigger partner in driving their outcomes? And that was exciting for me. So let's peel a couple layers off the live ramp onion, if you will. You know, I'm a, a layman in most of this, and my job is to know enough to be dangerous, and that's yeah. about it. But what I see is that confluence that you've cracked of leveraging data, the customer experience, and focusing on driving results. There's lots of folks that can do one or two of those things, not that many that can do all three. Take us into the live ramp engine room and let's yeah. talk about how you do what you do. Yeah, it's interesting. So when I think about what, when we talk about what live ramp does, I think there are a couple of components to it. One is about data connectivity. You will hear us use that term a lot. And the other thing that you will hear in the marketplace is we want to make it safe and easy to use data. And while that, that statement's pretty simplistic, um, it's a very complex thing to do because the accessing data is complex, managing data is complex, making sure data is accurate is complex. Um, connecting that data to all of the other disparate sets of places that you want to do it so you can activate it, get insights that ultimately drive business results. That's not an easy thing to do. And so there's simplicity in the statement that I said, but that's on purpose because of how complex, um, how complex the ecosystem is that it, within, you know, it kind of within the, the realm that we work in. And um, yeah, so I, I, you know, we are highly focused on a couple of different things. So first is how can we better connect data and ensure accuracy around identity? So you're gonna hear a lot around identity. How can we then create unified solutions? Because listen, if I think about LiveRamp and I think about our evolution, we started as an onboarding company. We started solving a single problem for customers. We're going to take offline data and we're going to make it available for digital use right now as the the world has evolved and now what we're really focused on is how can we create a set of unified solutions that plugs into the ecosystem today that will allow us or allow that that enables us to be able to power our brands and partners to have stronger better identity to have a, a stronger stronger data backbone be able to connect that. And then ultimately, today we're talking about advertising and marketing, 
But if you think about the power of data and what it can do for customer for, for health, as an example, what it can do for supply chain management, how we can connect all these different sets of data to be able to deliver on, yes, the ROI for advertising, on, yes, thinking about the customer experience. To your point, Matt, you know, thinking, uh, you know, how do you connect call center data with website data, with other set sources of data so you can enhance the customer experience, potentially down to POS? And listen, some of this is aspirational, right? But like when we think about the power of connected data, that's what we're thinking about, connecting that experience, everything from advertising, when you're anonymous to when I know where you are, all the way through the continuum, and then across, you know, beyond marketing, beyond advertising, so that we can, you know, continue to drive what it is that our customers are, are trying to drive towards. So, so there are a few areas of our industry that are hotter right now than what folks are doing with data and the operating systems that a lot of us sit on, I guess all of us sit on is comes down to either Apple or Android. Give us your perspective, fly above for a moment and give us your perspective on the conversation around data and privacy. Yeah. And uh, do you think the industry has blown the opportunity to self-regulate itself. Uh, and, you know, if you're all of a sudden made chairwoman of the FTC, what do you see as sort of the big agenda items to tackle here? It's a lot of questions I just asked you, but I think you're up to it. Yeah, I think so. I'm going to make somewhat of a bold statement. And the first thing I think we have to get really clear on is are, or what are the decisions that are being made by companies that are business-driven versus privacy-driven? And are there decisions and, um, and are there policies and decisions that are being made that are um, business decisions cloaked in privacy? And I think what we'll find is that like, you know, I just, I'm, I'm pretty direct and I'm like, let's just call it what it is. So um, I think there are, there are bad actors that have created an environment where self-regulation gets really difficult. And I think that there's a couple of things. One is just consumer education and having them understand what the value exchange is for sharing that data. You know, burying privacy policies in so much like legal speak that nobody understands them doesn't necessarily do us any good because we're not able to, to, to really clearly articulate the value prop of giving data and what you get back from it. Instead, I think it creates some fear. There's consumer fear. Now, some of this is generational as well, because as we look at Gen Z, right, much more willing to be able to share data because they understand if they share data, um, they might get something back for it. At the same time, they also have higher expectations, right? They want you to predict what they want back. And so I think there's, there's a lot of nuances around privacy. So the first thing I would do is one, let's look at what is really regulation and privacy policy-driven decisions versus business decisions. I think that's the first thing. Um, two is I do think that people are making, I, I do think consumer privacy or consumer experience and expectations should be the um, kind of the driving force behind what we are all doing and focused on. Um, the challenge with that is it also then starts to limit 
how far we can push and what we can do. Um, and then, you know, when I think about self-regulation, I would love to be at a point where we didn't have to have the discussion, where we all use data in an ethical way. The reality of that is we're not all like we're not all acting that way. And we probably have slightly different different definitions around what the ethical use of data is. And so having a third party regulate, I, I, I just I wish we could have self-regulation, but I think we're past that point. Yeah, well, morality, I think it's an old uh, it's not <laughs> it's not politically correct to quote him anymore. But it was an old Woody Allen line where I think it was from love and death where he says morality is subjective. Yeah, it's so true. Yeah, and that's it's certainly so true. true. And and it's you know, objective. Yeah. And then when you look at okay, so if we accept that something has to be done from a regulatory vantage point, but then I go back to you know when the big Silicon Valley chiefs are hauled in front of Congress, and you've got people like Chuck Grassley you know, asking the questions woefully unprepared by their oh. staff, shockingly so. Um, I, you know, I, I don't have a lot of confidence in the ability of these folks who maybe some of them might be, uh, you know, still dialing up on AOL right. Uh, right. to be able to shape and make policy. Yeah, one of my biggest fears, and it's it's funny you say that, Matt, because I, I think about it when you were asking the question about, like, if I'm the head of the FTC, the first thing I'm doing is educating Washington, D.C. And it's interesting. It's because there is such a, a fundamental lack of understanding. I, rem I remember the questions that they were asking, like, Zuckerberg when he was testifying, and it was so, they were so basic that, you know, even one of my aunts who understands a fraction of what I do looked at me and said, well, I even know that answer, right? Yeah, yeah. And so, you know, this we need more education around the business applications of data. And I think, look, look, there is a lot of work being done around that and being done just on Capitol Hill in general and, and trying to better understand it and drive to the right answers. My fear is that you then get into an over-regulated situation because of a lack of understanding and education of what is actually happening. And that is, you know, it's like, it, it's a delicate dance that we have to do. Yeah, and I, and I would imagine, I remember my early career, we were talking about it earlier a little bit, was in sports. And uh, I, I remember the vast lobbying operation that Philip Morris had in the waning days of tobacco sponsorship. And, you know, we all watched, many of us at least watched the uh, U.S. Open, the women's final was tremendous with those two young kids. Right. And when Emma won, they cut to Virginia Wade in the crowd, who was the last British athlete to win the U.S. Open and one of the great British tennis players of all time. When you go back and you talk to Virginia Wade and Chris Everett, Navratilova and Gulagong and all the early players, they all love Virginia Slims. Because before Virginia Slims, there was literally no money in women's tennis at all. And um, there were huge lobbying operations to stave off and ultimately unsuccessfully and properly so tobacco regulation, yep. where it could be sold, how they could advertise, what they could sponsor, et cetera. I would guess without having any specific knowledge at all, but I would guess that there are vast operations to retain the status quo in Washington, D.C. 
I mean, I would, yeah, I, I have absolutely no intel on any of that. Yeah, so, neither. This is just an uneducated guess. Yeah, I mean, I'd agree. I think it is. Uh, I just go back. You know what I what I constantly struggle with is, you know, using your example. It's like I, I there is there is a fine line with which we can have. I'm just going to tie it back to data for a second with where brands and partners and agencies have access to the level of data that they need to be able to create the right consumer experience and how they are still regulatory compliant. Yeah. And that line, it's, it's, it's gray and it's blurry and it changes a little bit. And um, it, it's just interesting that, and I think, you know, that's why I think privacy counsel is so important and, and, and having a strong point of view, not just on what is regulation, but what is the right way to use this data? That is so important because I don't want to get into a regulatory conversation. Right. I don't even want right. to go down that path. Right. I want to say, is this the right thing for the customer? Is this the right thing for you as a brand potentially, or as a marketer or as a partner? And so it's, and, and it gets super gray when you're in the regulatory and, and there's a lot of like the subjective pieces of it. There's so much that's up for interpretation. And so that's why, you know, almost not wanting to go down that path, like the Virginia Sims Slims example, you know, if we can stay really focused on what are the right ways to use data and have organizations put a stake in the ground and say, here's how we, what we believe is, is ethically appropriate for use of data. That's where I think we're in a better spot. Yeah. And I think LiveRamp is standing on a great piece of land and has taken all the right positions. Again, morality subjective, but I love the way you guys are approaching everything for your clients and, and partners all over the world now. So what's on the front burner? You've got so much interesting stuff going on at LiveRamp. Give us a little peek at what's on the front burner. And then as we start to wrap, if we were to do this again next year, Daniela, I'd love to get your crystal ball look at what you think we might be talking about. So let's talk about what's hot now at LiveRamp yep. and what yep. you think will be hot a year from now. Yep. Yeah, I, I think there's a couple of things. So I think from, a, a organ, like from an ecosystem and from an industry standpoint, I think data collaboration and the fact that we can access data um, without having it move and that brands can say, share data just more readily and easily. I think we're very much in the nascency of that. And I think there's a lot of opportunity around that alone and what that can unlock for, um, for everyone in the ecosystem, whether it's a brand, whether you're a partner, a TV provider, whatever the case is, I think it unlocks a lot of opportunity. I think, you know, I'd be remiss if I didn't think about the impact that COVID has had on the workforce and the changing workforce. And for me, it's personally been a year of growth. And, you know, the other piece of it is I hope that we, when we sit down and we talk about equality and we talk about DIB, that it's not its own special thing, that it is ingrained in everything that we do and that we are at a much better place in terms of having equal representation within the workforce. And I think that is, you know, if, if I would put my hat on from a live ramp standpoint, and I think about data collaboration, and I think about, you know, federation of data and all of that. And then when I think about it, the humanity, going back technology and humanity, Matt, that you were saying earlier, on the humanity for a piece of it, 
I really want the focus to be on how do we ensure that all voices are heard and that different points of views are valued at all levels from entry level to board level within the, within the industry. Great. Great answer. Well, thank you so much for doing this. You were truly a, a terrific guest and I'm delighted that we had the opportunity to have a season two live ramp episode. So thanks so much, Daniela. Matt, thank you so much. It was such a pleasure.